What is the current state of using restorative justice practices in schools? Get ready for that FRAM episode. Next. The FRAM episode. Starting in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. The FRAM episode. The FRAM episode. The Fram episode. Turning now to education news, the concept of restorative justice sending badly behaving students to mediation sessions rather than suspending them is igniting a debate about discipline in America's classroom. Well, hello, it's the first of that Fram episode. And this first episode of our podcast that I hope you will enjoy is going to be talking about restorative justice practices in schools. And we are going to define what restorative justice in schools is all about. And we're going to talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some examples of practices. I'm going to give two sides, uh, those that use it and appreciate it and those who use it and find that there are issues. And then I'm going to share experiences from my family, particularly my child's experiences in several schools. And finally, we're going to wrap this up and give a little bit more of a conclusion about the state of the current situation in regards to the use of restorative justice practices in schools. Okay, so we're jumping right into some studies from 2018, also some excerpts, news excerpts from 2021 and 2022. We're actually talking about the restorative justice practices being used in schools. Now, a 2018 study by Matthew Steinberg of the University of Pennsylvania and Johanna Lacoe at Mathematica Policy Research, uh, which is uh, headquarters in Washington, D.C., I believe, highlights several crucial lessons required to administer a healthy school-based restorative justice. Well, first, uh, the whole uh, goal, which we will uh, go into one of the news excerpts, talks about how it prevents a rise or consistent use of suspensions. So restorative justice can serve as a valuable tool. It helps students process nonviolent misbehavior. Uh, but there is a situation where restorative justice does not ignore that there needs to be a period of time in certain situations during which a student should be off the school property. And this is where we will get into later some uh, issues in another excerpt. Also, the study by the authors, uh, they believe that the effective restorative justice program programming does not remove penalties. It makes consequences more intentional. Um, a common misconception they're saying is that restorative uh, justice does not support suspensions or further discipline, but students may do an alternative suspension placement or complete constructive assignments that help them to process the situation that uh, they had caused if they are an offender. Uh, to a, a victim or victims. Uh, they might also engage in a guided reflective discussion and activity, which is another idea the authors discuss. Thirdly, the authors talk about how schools must have additional supports. This can't be a standalone program. There has to be funding support. There has to be uh, actual buy-in um, by the pe people, employees at the school, as well as parents. And so this whole uh, concept of restorative justice 
as a model. It relies on intentional collaboration between the schools. You have to include uh, mental and behavioral health specialists. Yes, law enforcement needs to still be included. Juvenile justice officials still need to be included in the process and local community organizations, partnerships in the communities, they need to be included. Uh, and this can be that there may be limited funding for the program. This is where community partnerships can support the program in a particular school or school district. And so when we talk about uh, the ideal of restorative justice programs, you're talking about an extensive list of protocols, uh, procedures, practices that need to be implemented simultaneously by multiple uh, groups of people within the structure of the school district. The authors also, uh, in their 2018 research, uh, discuss restorative justice programming has to involve all local resources available to the school, and they in particular, talk about how student districts must put their money where their mouth is. It is a dedicated application. It is a, a long-term solution. It is not a short-term solution, which is what the authors talk about. And so what we're going to get at is an excerpt. We're going to listen to an excerpt uh, from CBSN in 2021, discusses research by Open Society Institute in Baltimore and assistance with Johns Hopkins University, which was involved in a study on the impacts of the restorative justice programs in a, I think about 14 schools, which the video discusses. And so let's take a listen to uh, what this excerpt involves in the information uh, about this one side. In Baltimore, a recent report by the uh, Open Society Institute looked into the city's intensive restorative practices program. Uh, the program, which was introduced in 2018, aims to improve school climates in part by building better relationships between students and teachers. And those initial efforts certainly appear to be promising. A year later, 14 test schools implemented the model. Johns Hopkins University found suspensions decreased by nearly half. So we're joined now by Karen Weber uh, for a little more insight into this. Karen, you are the director of the Education and Youth Development Program at the Open Society Institute in Baltimore. So thanks for joining us. I think, you know, restorative practices may be something that people are not as familiar with. As I understand it, and you can kind of clarify, it was a little bit of a reaction to the zero tolerance philosophy that we had seen sweeping across the country, which resulted in um, um, a lot of suspensions. Uh, we would sort of occasionally report on these oddball stories of, you know, a kindergartner being suspended for bringing a toy axe to school or something along those lines, but also some clear biases in who was suspended, who received the most punitive uh, punishments, particularly minority kids, African-American kids. So explain to us how restorative practices um, was meant to sort of correct what had been going wrong and what the main goal of restorative practices is. Yeah, uh, restorative practices is really not new to humans. Um, we found that people, um, Maori people, people in Africa, uh, Native Americans use this practice to resolve conflict. Um, what, what was absent in the zero tolerance policies is that no children were even asked what the behavior stemmed from, 
why they were involved in the activity, and what they could do to amend the harm. Uh, restorative practices is, is really has children responding to what's going on in their lives and explaining what their behavior was about. Uh, what we saw with, people, with children just being sent out, like you did X, so you get two days and off you go home. First of all, home is not always monitored. Um, many children found their way into juvenile justice issues just because they were unsupervised. Additionally, when they returned to school, they were way behind from the children who were in class, uh, you know, ordinarily. So what we saw is that children who were suspended, they were failing out of school. They were disengaging from school, dropping out of school. Um, and they were also, uh, unfortunately, often involved in criminal uh, and juvenile justice issues. So this was not a solution to having all of our children um, educated and, and given the education that they deserve. Uh, it's a very simple mm -hmm. process. Uh, most schools who institute uh, restorative practices do so by having children sit in a circle and check in in the beginning of the day. Um, and the check-in can be 15 to 20 minutes. It's an open-ended question. The teacher is not in charge. The teacher is the facilitator. Um, and the question can be as simple as, um, what was your weekend like? And you'll find things uh, to be very interesting uh, in terms of what's happening in our children's lives. It also gives you an indication of the children who are struggling uh, in their own personal lives and also academically. So it's a, a holistic approach to teaching the whole child, which is something we used to do historically. We used to know the children in our world. Uh, teacher turnover wasn't the problem that it is uh, in many uh, urban areas and other areas around the country. So there was a relationship that already existed. This is a process that helps you get to that relationship so that you know the children who are in front of you. So now you have a definition of restorative justice models in particular, a model. And uh, just to give you a foundation of knowledge uh, to start with as you listen further in the podcast. And when I was uh, getting my degree, my PhD in education from Arizona State University, the understanding early on about developing a program, this is before uh, the implementation of actual restorative justice programs uh, started taking uh, a foothold, it was the idea that to develop a program that could restore a balance in a school district or in schools in a particular community uh, was an ongoing uh, interest and a process, uh, an excited process. Uh, researchers wanting to come up with uh, any type of model that could be preventative and could be a, a solution, a long-term solution. And that was my basis of my understanding of restorative justice models and, and programs that are implemented and the policies that governed how they were implemented. And so it was a, a sense of restoring an imbalance. Um, a lot of the times, though, the consistent issue has always been funding, 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 funding. Some states' uh, schools are uh, well-funded because of taxes and uh sponsorships and donors. Other schools are not well-funded because of their location and the uh, situation where there may not be uh, support, tax support for the school district as much as it should be. And this has always been an ongoing issue. But when we're talking about actually bringing out the best in our students and wanting them to learn in an environment 
that is fruitful and uh, welcoming and accepting. We have to understand that there has to be a constant uh, uh, firm ground that a program needs in order for it to consistently uh, be maintained and to offer success. Success is always the ultimate goal in any type of situation when you're implementing a program. But with restorative justice uh, programs, you success means, uh, yes, GPA uh, um, grades, uh, levels, how high are they? Uh, your graduation, graduation rates, retention of your employees, your teachers, uh, all of this as well as more uh, it actually means success. And so this is what is the underlying understanding about wanting this type of program to succeed. So I'm going to play for you a little bit more excerpt from the CBSN uh, news excerpt on this uh, study with Open Society Institute and John Hopkins University and a particular guest speaker talk discussing her experiences and her talking about uh what happens, what is needed, uh, and what happens if you don't have um, the the structure and the framework and the support that this program needs. So listen once more to an excerpt from this news uh, piece. Change my classroom. Um, everybody didn't use it because it is optional. This is a problem. Um, when you're uh, implementing restorative practices, Everybody in the school needs to use it. And I mean everybody, the lunch lady, the, the secretary who sits at the front desk, the principal, everyone needs to use it because it changes your approach to the children. And, it, and you go from a deficit approach to a success approach. Like I want you to be part of this community and I want to have conversations with you so I can get to the root of whatever problems we're having so that you can be a part of this community. So this sounds very interesting, but I know that there is no philosophy or program without its flaws. And I think it's got to be challenging when you're dealing with a classroom of 25, 32, you know, it's a lot easier to just say, go down to the principal's office because you're the one kid that is disrupting this classroom. Um, is it... So I, I, you're, you're obviously giving teachers a whole new sort of set of tools that they have to use. Where are the challenges when it comes to this program? In, in what areas are you seeing that maybe it needs to be tweaked, it needs to evolve, it, it doesn't work exactly as you'd like it to? Oh, that's an excellent question. And one of the biggest challenges is I think that some, some districts or some schools think that they can read the book and just tell teachers, okay, go do this thing. No, it, it takes a lot more than that. I mean, in Baltimore City, the reason we were able to have this success is that um, the entire school building uh, was given two days of training. And thereafter, there was coaching. Uh, coaches who are trained with sort of uh, facilitators went out to those schools twice a week, sometimes, um, sometimes less, sometimes once a week, but they went out consistently and they help those teachers who are struggling uh, with the practice. Uh, it, it's not intuitive to everyone. For some classrooms, they're already, the teachers are already re uh, restorative, and this just gives them some language um, and some practices that help them uh, in the process. Uh, the other thing we did, though, is we prepared some tools. We, gave, we prepared an entire lesson plan guidebook 
and we use teacher true well restorative practitioners to put that guidebook together. And it has a, a million circle starters. Um, it has lesson plans. Uh, and so that when, after you've had your training, you have a guidebook to walk in and begin the practice uh, anew. Uh, of course, this practice gets better with practice. It also gets better with coaching. Uh, without the coaching and training, it does, it's not going to work automatically for everyone. Uh, but if it's a whole school practice, that's the other thing that we stress and recommend. If this is being done for the entire school, then everybody is on the same page. And all the students know when I go to this class on this day, this is what our process is. One of my favorite videos, we shot many videos so that teachers could see what this looked like before they engaged in it. And one of my favorite videos has about 35 middle schoolers sitting in a circle with this one teacher facilitator talking about what they want to do when they go to high school. So this is something that is, is an excellent practice. Like anything else, uh, big change often uh, has big pushback. Uh, if the leaders are not on board, it's uh, not going to stick. Uh, it has to come from the top down and from the bottom up. Um, the students also need to be trained in the practice. And what you'll find in, in a very short time is that students will ask for circles to resolve conflict rather than fighting or taking it into their own hands. Um, what you'll also find is that students will begin to suggest, these are the things we need to discuss. Uh, this is the circle that we need to have at this moment. So for example, uh, when we see all of the uprising that happened across the United States of America regarding Black Lives Matter, um, it would be crazy to go into a school building and not have a discussion about that. And that's what we were doing as educators. We were acting as if the outside world and the inside schoolhouse had no correlation. And that makes school feel and seem very irrelevant. So this brings the world into the schoolhouse and gives you an opportunity to examine it and to examine your own reaction to what's happening outside of school and also inside of school. And what you start hearing in the excerpt uh, are now points about the implementation process and cracks in the implementation process of restorative justice models, or in particular, a model for a particular school district. And this is where we start looking at concerns that how does this impact the school and the students when you start having these cracks and these errors in implementing uh, practices and a whole entire model. And this is where we get start like getting into listening to the next excerpt, which which is a, excuse me, which is a 2022 News Nation excerpt on one of the uh, possibilities and concerns and incidences that arise. Please take a listen. Dre Clark is joining us live with more on this story. Dre? Adrian, good morning. Restorative justice is all about rethinking how students are disciplined. Should you send a student at home for a few days and suspend them if they are caught fighting in class or disrupting the classroom? Or should you have an open dialogue, a conversation where they are allowed to express themselves and explain their actions? Reading, writing, and now restorative justice. Restorative justice is a new disciplinary approach catching on around the country, where students are given mediation and counseling rather than suspension and expulsion when they get in trouble. We have to know what 
the right thing for a particular child is because every child is unique. Betsy Combier defends students in school disciplinary cases. She says restorative justice only works when teachers and administrators do it the right way. She says in some cases there's no real effort to understand why a student acts out angrily or violently in school. It needs to be fixed. But critics of the restorative justice concept say school administrators are taking the soft approach and abandoning suspensions. In New York City, which has the nation's largest public school system, suspensions of five days or more given out by principals and superintendents dropped by more than 42% from the fall of 2017 to the fall of 2021. Combier says it's become a numbers game for the district. The more kids that are thrown out, um, the less funding they might get. News Nation contacted the city's Department of Education and was told, we do not tolerate violent behavior in our schools. And when incidents occur, principals are empowered to swiftly take a range of disciplinary actions, including suspensions. But in Elba Rodriguez's case, she says the district took the wrong action when they suspended her son. The school system, the DOE, Department of Education, has failed my son. Rodriguez's son is in special education. She says he should have had a behavioral intervention plan. But instead, when he acted out in school, he was suspended. I feel that they need to uh, train teachers, staff, how to deal with children with disability. Suspension or restoration, those are the options. And depending on who you ask, they both can be effective. New York City Department of Education data shows that black and brown students are suspended far more frequently than any other group. And that's another reason why many principals may be reluctant to suspend students because they don't want to be labeled racist. So it is inevitable that all uh, policies that are the uh, framework for programs ultimately have to have some type of evaluation process. And this is where uh, we are getting limited information still. We have a few research studies that show the implementation process for certain practices of restorative justice. Uh, very few on program, programmatic uh implementation across the board in its original restorative justice uh, model format. Um, but what we can tell by ex people's experiences over time, these cracks in the implementation process are starting to have a negative impact on children's learning. And I'm going to now uh, refer to my family's experience uh, with restorative practices, restorative justice practices in a few schools that my child had attended in Maryland, as well as in California. And so my child presented a voice to me. My child is transgender. And my child presented their voice to me and gave me information about what they have seen, what they have experienced over the years uh, in several incidences where they were bullied. Uh, and for example, in Maryland, one of the most extreme situations uh, where my child was bullied, physically attacked, um, there wasn't necessarily an actual implementation of restorative justice practices. It was that you go to the principal and the principal was working with the offender and the victim 
in a room. And so in that extreme incident, my child told me how the offender, the other child, lied, made up lies, uh, was accusing my child of things that did not occur, was accusing my child of being the problem and causing the problem. The principal uh, uh, started to support this finger pointing and then continued as an adult to finger point my child, thereby emotionally traumatizing uh, my child uh, to this day, which is why as a parent, I will not agree to have my child in a room with a bully and a principal and no one else uh, alone. And so it is, as a parent, my right to state, uh, and I should be asked, it should not be assumed that I agree by a principal. I should be asked as a parent, uh, is it okay if a situation occurs? Uh, can I, as a principal or assistant principal, be alone in a room with a bully and uh, your child, if your child is a victim, and I have, I should have the right, and I do have the right to say no. I have to be on an intercom I, uh, or uh, on a, in a conference call, excuse me. I have to be on a call. I have to be there in person. And this is what I have stated uh, from that point on that incident in Maryland. And so the next incident that occurred, my child being bullied in California, the principal took it upon herself to automatically pull my child into a room with the bully without asking me. Obviously, <clears throat> this was a no-no, and I made sure I stated this clearly. This will not happen again. And it is a situation, again, my child described. The bully was lying, uh, was uh, finger-pointing, saying that my child was causing a problem when my child was actually defending themselves. And any person uh, has a right to defend themselves. And so also is a situation, yes, my child had gotten frustrated and it has at times does get frustrated with bullies. Uh, it is uh, an ongoing situation uh, still, but it has, as my child has gotten older, it's lessened over the years. Uh, most recently in California, I, my child transferred to another school district and it's been a very uh, welcoming experience a humbling experience as a parent. But I, again, uh, I actually appreciated and I was asked by the new principal, is it okay if your child is uh, bullied? Because I had previously stated that my child had been bullied at, at previous schools and in previous school districts. And the principal asked, is it okay if I'm in a room uh, with the bully and if your child is a victim? And I said, no. I have to be on a conference call and I, or I need to be there in person, call me and they were scheduled. This is in line with a restorative justice practice. A parent should be with, uh, with their child. It is supposed to be a community situation. It is described that there should be a fam family therapy uh, construct, uh, some type of model going on with not only the parents of the victim, but the parents of the bully. There needs to be uh, some therapeutic sessions with the parents of the bully and the bully as well. It can't just be that the principal is only talking to the bully and only talking to the victim. Leaving the parents out 
seems to be an ongoing issue where somebody's dropping the ball about implementing uh, counseling sessions. They are not uh, implementing them properly. And for example, also, in all three of the schools that my child has been, there has not been any type of peer group uh, um, setup, uh, peer group sessions, where a whole entire classroom, as in the previous excerpt has talked about, where a whole entire classroom is talking first thing in the morning about how their day has started, what what are they dealing with, or how's it going, or uh, what's what are they thinking about. This is a vital practice, and it is not occurring. So when you as a principal or assistant principal state that you're implementing restorative justice practices, me having a PhD in education uh, and the wiser is envisioning certain practices that are essential, uh, especially if there's only so much funding. I'm thinking these are essential practices. These are socialization processes that need to happen. But as a parent in general, I can see from another perspective, if you don't have that background that I have and you're looking to see, okay, they're saying restorative justice practices, I feel better, but what does it, I guess that, I guess that means, okay. Um, or yeah, I hear it's good or, uh, I don't know about, you know, whatever. I don't understand what you're saying. And so it, you get into that now situation where you as a principal, assistant principal, or even a superintendent of a school district what effort have you made to implement buy-in from parents uh, consistently and what maintenance have you done to maintain that buy-in? And that's one of the issues that from my family's experience, uh, that's one of them. That's one issue that I'm seeing that has occurred. Another one is the uh, sporadic cho choosing of particular practices. Now, this practice I told you about, which is offender victim mediation, is originally what it was called in, in general restorative programs in criminal justice systems. Uh, they, it is the same type of practice being implemented in schools, in an offender victim mediation process where you have the child who's a bully and you have the victim being bullied and you have the principal or assistant principal in a room. And the assistant principal or principal or facilitating a, a, a conversation, discussing the misbehavior at hand, the situation at hand. The problem is though, there's, there's an assumption by this principal that these two students are going to leave the room and they're going to be fine. And they're just either going to leave each other alone, uh, or they're, uh, they're just going to go out their way and they've, they've heard me, they hear me. But what my child has been saying is that their friends have told them, they have witnessed that once the offender, the bully leaves the room away from the principal, it goes in one ear and out the other. And it's just a repetitive cycle that never actually comes to any type of fruition, never comes to any type of uh, resolution for the victim. And from what my child has described, when the repeated incidences from the bully's friends the bully itself again, um, reoccur and they do. It is just a re-victimization of my child being put in a situation to see it over and over again, that the, uh, the bully is treated in it with, uh, kit gloves gently 
and they there's a false assumption made by the principal or assistant principal and that my child thereby once leaves that door realizes that there was never any resolution there's no emotional growth going on uh with the bully and that it's just the same old problem uh that's going to rear its ugly ugly head another day and so this leaving out of essential practices from a restorative justice model uh, seems to be a growing problem. Now, albeit I am a full supporter of restorative justice programs. I am an educator. I can I hear what these excerpts are saying. I've witnessed uh, teachers implement them in their classroom, but at the same time, I've witnessed those teachers not get full support from principals. And I've seen the what these programs can do in the classroom. It's amazing. But when you don't have across the board, top down and down up support and buy-in from not only all the employees from the school district, but the parents as well of the students, this long-term solution starts to crumble. And what you ultimately get is what my child has experienced, which is just a re-victimization process, constantly being put in an uncomfortable situation and being asked when it comes down to it, intimating, uh, implying, how did you contribute to this situation? And my child going, I am not contributing to this negative behavior whatsoever. I'm living my life. I'm growing. I'm learning. I'm a child. Yet I'm being blamed for something I have no control over, which is the bully. And this is where the crux of the situation has presently come to. And I've talked to others as well who have stated, yes, my kid was called into the office, going to the room with a principal and the kid who caused problems. And then my kid left and came home and said, this is what? Yeah, they're just going to do it again. Um, Parents of the bully, I've heard parents who are the parents of bullies who laugh and scoff, who actually intentionally tell their kids to bully. They told their kids to bully my child. I've been told. I've seen bullies bully my child by arriving school early and standing outside and waiting for my child. Uh, and I've seen the, the interaction between these kids and their parents. Uh, and the parents condoning as uh, their child bullying other children. I have witnessed parents clapping and smiling because they actually manipulated and emotionally ma manipulated and taught their child to bully my child and other children like my child. And this is unfortunately, uh, uh, as I get to the second point, when you don't have the buy-in of the parents, what option do you have when you're dealing with parents who refuse to buy in? This is the second question I'm asking in this is the current state of a situation. You can get a lot of parents to buy in to implementing properly restorative justice models into your school and school district. But what do you do to compensate for those parents that refuse to buy in because of their beliefs? Uh, about uh, children who are transgender, children who are gay, children who, who are uh, black, children who are Hispanic, children who are Asian, children uh, 
uh, who uh, are very intelligent. M many uh, uh, reasons uh, parents out there find uh, a problem with, you know, in regards to children and why their kids bully other children. So this is something I think uh, these two main points need to be addressed sooner than later. And this is why I'm coming to the understanding of the current state of implementing restorative justice practices uh, is no longer about implementing restorative justice models and programs. It is a, it's becoming a piecemeal process within schools to find the short-term solution with whatever funding or support you have uh, in order to resolve a situation uh, as much as you can. And so this is actually damaging to students who are being bullied. This is not helpful at all. And I think that at this point, there needs to be uh, a major discussion nationally about are we going to actually implement restorative justice programs and models or are we are we're going are we just going to implement and piecemeal certain practices that are ineffective uh, and, and ignore other practices that actually offer what is needed and i go back to again yes you know it can be a situation where the offender victim mediation practice can be effective when you have the peer group class sessions and you are talking uh, and there needs to be a smaller group situation in order to resolve uh, uh, an issue when the whole group, peer group situation is not. Peer pressure is a beautiful thing. And when you pressure people to act appropriately, to have certain social manners, to treat people socially uh, in a proper way, for being professional, the term professional in itself, when we go to, as adults, we go to workplace, we're told, it, the assumption is that we, we know the definition of professionalism and that we are implementing it. And so it is the same thing with children, that you understand that you need to act properly in a social uh, environment and those norms and those behaviors, those normal behaviors, those social behaviors, when you have your peers pressuring you to enact them, that is also a long-term solution. And that is some of what restorative justice models are trying to uh, be uh, to employ and be preventative in regards to negative behaviors. That long-term socialization process of developing an understanding of this is how I act in a school environment with my friends, we all have to act the same way. And across the board, the peer pressure is a maintenance process. It can maintain the positive behaviors and it could stamp down the negative behaviors. This is what's missing uh, from the implementation of restorative justice practices. You're not choosing the appropriate practices as a principal or assistant principal, that actually gives that foundation that is needed and that socialization process that is needed in order to uh, uh, support the other practices that you're implementing. And so this is where I believe the state uh, of the current situation in regards to implementing 
restorative justice practices is. This is the state as it is, and it's just going to continue to show more cracks uh, in the use of only specific practices in schools. So there needs to be a pause. There needs to be a national discussion. There needs to be a step back. And there needs to be a dedication or not. If you're not going to fully dedicate the whole entire school district and everybody in it into do, in implementing this restorative justice program, then you need to be upfront and say, we're not implementing this. This is the other type of program we're Im implementing and stick to it. Otherwise, it is a false sense of security for parents like myself when you play this game that's being played right now with this piecemealing and only picking certain practices and then re-victimizing the person who's victimized and being bullied. So this is the uh, point I'm trying to get at at the current status. So it's that Fram episode number one. And I thank you uh, for uh, sticking it out with me and listening. Uh, and if I actually would love to hear your comments, respectful comments, albeit I'm not going to tolerate disrespectful comments. And, uh, but I do respect you as a listener to say, I, I look forward to hearing your comments, respectful comments, and any input you can offer, or even any advice you can offer a parent like myself. Uh, in the situation that we're in. Uh, any insight is also appreciated as well. So thank you for taking the time to listen to that Fram episode. And we'll get back to you another time with a new episode and topic. Have a good day and wishing you all well. The Fram episode.